I want to talk to you today about uh, the fact that God's Word has been spun and twisted and rested, wrestled uh, by theologians in the name of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. Would anyone here disagree with that? We have extended in the world today a religion called Christianity, full of wonderful people who do many good works, and yet it is a Christianity primarily based upon tradition down through the centuries, accumulated traditions of church fathers and of the influences that came into the early church. And many of those influences, of course, were not biblical in their origins. Many of them had a pagan background, a pagan origin. And the church in Rome, the universally declared church by the emperors of Rome, the Catholic church, and that word means common or universal or general, as it were, the the common or general belief uh, became... Well, it, was, it became civil law, as it were, in, in the empire. And many things ended up being changed. Again, I don't say that in an accusatory way, but I say it because this is going out over the Internet, and this DVD or CD of this sermon may very well have wide circulation as well, and it may very well speak to people who are not part of our fellowship. So what I'm going to preach to you today will resonate with many of you. Many of you will already know it, know the details that I'm going to share with you, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are also surprised at some of the things you're going to learn in this sermon. So uh, what I want to begin with is to turn to 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter. The Apostle Peter makes mention here in chapter 3, of the fact that Paul was sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, hard to understand. And that's because, well, there's a number of reasons. First of all, it's because Paul's intellect was head and shoulders above everybody else, and not to in any way demean the other apostles, but Paul was, you know, an IQ giant. He was a very, very brilliant man, And he had studied and been educated by virtually the leading intellect of of the ancient world in his day and age, a man by the name of Gamaliel. The very fact that he would condescend to teach Paul speaks of the fact that Paul must have been a very, very bright student, to say the least. And Paul wrote in, in ways, with phrases and words that were sometimes hard to understand, and the Apostle Peter makes reference of that here. Uh, I want to also make sure we understand that the authors of the New Testament and, and the, uh, the translators, let me put it that way, the translators of the Bible, uh, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, uh, the, the King James translators, all of them were educated with a particular paradigm already in existence that colored their education. The education that was available to them was an education provided by the church, primarily the Roman church, and then the Church of England, and the Lutheran church later on, all of which were daughters of the Roman church, the church in Rome, the Catholic Roman church. And the the theological paradigms of that church, the doctrinal teachings of that church, in regards to heaven and hell and uh, the Trinity, immortality of the soul, virtually every, every doctrinal tenet of God's word was affected by and colored by that theology. And so they brought that mindset, they brought that isogesis. You know what isogesis is? Isogesis is when you have a preconceived notion or you have learned what you believe to be facts and then you take that, that paradigm, which may not be true, to the job of translating. And instead of exegesis, which is a, 
pure translation of allowing the, the translation to be word-for-word word accurate, you are doing something called isogesis. You are injecting your own ideas, your own attitudes, your own theological training into your translation. Now, having said that, I must include something that we all know. God is smarter than man, and he's certainly smarter than Satan the devil who hates God's word. And he has given us instructions and formulas by which we can study God's word. And the, the, the mistakes that men have made and that seminaries have made and continue to make, notwithstanding, we can know the truth and ferret out the truth. Christ said, you will know the truth and it will make you free. And we have a number of uh, lessons that we've gone through in, in time past in terms of how to study God's Word, that you must go into it, that you must make an incision and go into it to study, to show yourself not ashamed of God's Word. A, a, a workman that rightly divides God's Word. That may very well include uh, historical facts and, and documents that we can look at and the secular rest, uh, history and records that have been kept that we can also use to understand God's Word, realizing that no translation, including the King James translation, which I still believe to be the finest ever, but the translation is not holy. The Word of God is holy, and we must understand that. We can absolutely, I could spend the rest of my time up here, pointing out where there are flaws, there are mistranslations, there are punctuation mistakes, there are outright mistranslations of the, of the very uh, precious King James translation. That's not my purpose today. What I want to do today is share the, the truth and the impact of what Peter said in regards to Paul with specificity to a scripture that even in God's church, elders tend to shy away from because it is so difficult to expound and explain correctly. Let me go on here with what the Apostle Peter actually had to say in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Let me break into the, attack, into the text at verse 16. He's speaking of Paul here. As also in all of his epistles, that is Paul, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood. And the word understood here is significant because it is presented in the context of being hard to understand. The word understand is dusnoatos. And I know that. Don't, don't hold me to those pronunciations of those Greek words. I wish George was here to, to correct me. But my friend George Pantelidis is not here to correct me. However, this is dus no uh, atos, and, and uh, it implies a, a difficult understanding, thereby making something easy to misunderstand. That's the implication. Because it was hard to understand, it becomes ripe for misunderstanding. Do you follow me? Do you follow me? Thank you. Yes. In all of his epistles, speaking in, the, in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned, haven't been taught correctly, they are unlearned and unstable. They rest, as it were. They wrestle with the scripture. They rest as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. Yes. And Paul warned against that. In the book of Galatians, he talked about the fact that another gospel was being preached. There were men who were wresting the scripture, wrestling the meaning of it, twisting it, massaging it to say what they wanted it to say, translating it in ways that appealed to their paradigm instead of their exegetical study of God's word. You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge. See, we're, we are commanded to grow in knowledge. To learn God's word and to learn it correctly, it is a command. 
It's not a matter of whether you want to or not. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to embrace Jesus Christ and claim him as your Savior and Lord, then you must obey that command. We are commanded to grow in grace and knowledge. And that means a correct understanding, a correct knowledge, to grow in grace and knowledge, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. I want to go back to this word unlearned. It is amathasi, and it means to learn or, or to be learning in the context negatively here. Unlearned, of course, that hasn't happened. The implication is those who unlearn the Word of God end up resting the Scripture to say what they want it to say. And I think down through the ages, we have many, many examples that have found their way into God's Word. Uh, A primary example that will resonate with all of you, I'm sure, is 1 John 5, 7, which does not appear in any Christian document prior to the 13th century A.D., and yet somehow it found its way into the Bible and is now accepted as doctrine, you know. I remember years ago when Sandy and I were dating, and she being a, a good little Catholic girl, raised in the traditions and teachings of the Catholic Church, you know, like many other very fine Catholic people. I'm covering my bases here, aren't I? <laughs> and I was, I don't know why she kept going out with me, just a little sidebar here, because a typical date would be, I would pick her up, and then we would go somewhere and get a cup of coffee, and I would talk about the book of Daniel or something like that. You know. I don't know what kind of an exciting date that might have been. But at any point, I, I pointed out to her in her own Bible that 1 John 5, 7 had a little asterisk by it that pointed to the bottom. And down at the bottom of her big Douye Reims Catholic translation Bible, it said what that asterisk was. These scriptures, it said, in regards to 1 John 5, 7, are not authentic and not original and do not appear in any manuscript. Oh, they're honest about it. However, the Catholic Church chooses to insert them. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it said pretty much that what that actually, uh, what it actually was. Of course, that was a lot of years ago. So, uh, I think that's a a good example of how things sometimes can uh, end up in, in, in the Scripture. But the translators... As learned as they were, as as educated as they were, none of them, I don't believe any of them, as brilliant as they were, none of them were the equal of Paul in terms of intellect or education. In the, the different languages that Paul spoke and so forth and so on, the education that he had and what he was able to do, the fact that he wrote most of the New Testament. And uh, the, the fact is, As they did the translating, sometimes they were conflicted by their theological paradigm and what they were actually translating. And I'll have more to say about that as we go on through this. But I think I've set the stage. Paul's words are often rested and twisted and spun by traditional, Trinitarian, immortal soul theologians who are in reality apologists for a tradition-based religion that claims to be Christian, but is in fact exactly what Christ condemned in Mark chapter 7, wherein he said, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men, making the law of God of no effect through your traditions. Yes. So having said that, turn with me now over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the go-to scripture. These scriptures that I'm going to expound to you, these are the go-to scriptures that are the the last resort. Well, it's usually the first resort and ends up being the last resort of any theological discussion you would have with someone in traditional Christian circles about whether or not man is immortal, born with an immortal soul, 
and whether or not when we die we go to heaven, so forth and so on. This is their golden scripture. This is the go-to crown-bearing scripture for them. Yes. But only because Paul, Paul's words were difficult here. And it's so difficult, in fact, the way it's written down, the way it's been translated, with that paradigm in place of the translators, that makes it all the more difficult. But I want to expound it to you today. And I want to give some credit to my good friend, Lloyd Carey. Now, Lloyd has served the church very, very well for many years. He's, the, he's, my, he's our deacon in, uh, in Toledo. And uh, as you know, many of you know, and if you don't know, he is the Church of God answer man in many respects. And he answers questions in the international news. And in this uh, latest edition, he wrote uh, an answer to the question posed here about chapter 5 of uh, 2 Corinthians in regards to these scriptures. And he did a really great job, and I want to I give him credit, because some of the things I'm going to be talking about, uh, I, will, I will, in effect, be quoting uh, some of his own answers. But let's begin here by reading through it first. Or we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Wow. That is the, I believe that may well be the most twisted, rested set of scriptures here in the entire Bible. Allow me now to, uh, to talk about it from a different perspective perspective here. First of all, uh, Paul is speaking of the present mortal condition and the future glorified condition. You know, let's connect the dots. And uh, the mortal body is described here as an earthly house that we presently have, this tabernacle, this tent, this house, this earthly house, and our, is our present home. And these descriptions that God's word uses, are contrasted with everlasting building from God. An everlasting building from God. A house, that is. A tent, a tabernacle. That isn't made with hands, as it were, which is our house from God. Will be, as it were, our house from God. We shall be clothed with that house, as it were. That's what we're being told. A person who is absent from the body has put off their present clothing. That's what this is really telling us. And that person will remain naked, as it were, or unclothed until they are further clothed with their building or house or habitation or tabernacle or tent from heaven. At that time, they will then be present with the Lord. Yes. That's a lot more uh, logical Uh, when you break it down that way, of course. And that does no harm to the translation in any way, shape, or form. I take no license with those words. That is exactly what it is telling us. Both our present uh, mortality and our future mortality are described in terms of clothing, like I said. One's future clothing is an immortal spirit body, that we will obtain at the resurrection of the saints, which will take place, of course, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Facts that we know that we can be very dogmatic about. Now, having said that, allow me to also share some other things with you about these scriptures. As we go back to uh, verse 6, 
We are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. A mistranslation. And I'm going to prove that it's a mistranslation. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. A mistranslation. And I'm going to prove to you that it's a mistranslation. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. A mistranslation. And I'm going to prove to you that it's a mistranslation. And I can do that very, very simply. The Greek word for absent is apimi. And it means to be absent. It truly does mean to be absent. It means to not be somewhere. It means to be missing. It means to not be present. It means to be absent. And it can't mean something else. It means to be absent. We know what the word absent means. And that is indeed what that word means. But that's not the word. That is not the Greek word. The Greek word is apekdekamahi. Apekdekamahi. Which means to wait for something, to wait expectantly, or to look for, or wait for an arrival, to wait for someone to arrive, to look unexpectedly, unex- uh, to wait for something, to wait for someone's arrival. That's that, what that word means, and that's how it's used in grammatical Greek expressions. But that's not, that's not the word that's used here, of course. So let's look at this from the different point of view now. Knowing Therefore, verse 6, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are waiting for the Lord. Not absent from Him, waiting from the Lord is the actual, precise understanding that we must attain to. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be Absent from the body? No. To be waiting to be present with the Lord. Yes. Wherefore we labor that whether present with him, with the Lord, or waiting for him, we may be accepted of him. Yes, indeed. So when you translate the word correctly, it totally changes the understanding here and gives you the correct perspective that we must understand is correct Because all other scripture from cover to cover of God's word validates what I just said to you. And we're going to look at some of those scriptures. First of all, let's just look over at Genesis to begin. Book of Genesis. Because it really goes down to whether or not you're going to believe God or you're going to believe the present God of this world, Satan the devil. Here in the book of Genesis, we know that God was given instruction to Adam. And he told Adam about all the the trees in the garden. And he told him about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, leave that tree alone. And let me break into the text here at verse Uh, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt ag mauth. And again, I'm sure my Hebrew pronunciation is probably not any better than my Greek pronunciation. But that's very, very significant. The word surely here means truly. In all instances, when you see it in the Old Testament, it must be understood in the context of absolute and truth. So God is saying the truth because God cannot lie. You shall surely, you shall surely die. Literally to die. Truly to die. Surely die. Actually die. Really die. That's what he's being told here. Because when you connect ma'uth, the word for die, 
And the word surely here, there can be no other understanding. It means absolute cessation of life, the opposite of life being death. That's what's being implied here. No possibility of any other understanding. You will absolutely die. You will surely die. You will, you will, aman emeth, you shall truly, surely die. In all instances, it's translated that way. Ak takes away the possibility to understand the word die, which is mu'uth, as a metaphor, because mu'uth is literally the opposite of life, and ak, in conjunction with mu'uth, means to truly, literally, sincerely, actually, positively die, (laughs) and no longer be alive. Have I made my point? Have I made my point? It means to truly die, does it not? Okay, now, that's the word of God. We know it's true because God cannot lie. Then we come over here to chapter 3, and what do we see? We see the woman engaged in a conversation with the Nakash, the serpent, Satan the devil, metaphorized as the serpent here. And verse 4. Well, let me just begin, but back up for clarity's sake. Now, the serpent was more subtle, was wiser, more clever than any beast, than any creature of the field, any created being, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not Ah, move. A direct contradiction of God. You shall not actually die. You won't totally, you won't really die. I mean, you've seen decay. You've seen leaves fall from the tree and, and turn crinkly and brown and die. You've seen, you've seen the, the, the existence of decay already in God's creation. You know what, what that means, but that's not, you know, the body happens that way. You've already seen the symbiosis of animal and plant life here in the garden, so that's not, I mean, you understand that you won't actually die. Once that happens, you're still alive. You won't really die. You will not truly die. You won't surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And of course, the world has chosen to believe Satan instead of God. It's that simple. If you believe in the immortality of the soul, that man is born immortal and cannot die, then that is based upon what Satan the devil says here, not what God said. God said to the man, you will die. A cessation of life. And there's nothing implied here about a disembodied soul going off somewhere and and continuing to live while just the body, the tabernacle of flesh, decays. I mean, there's nothing said. That, that all comes from theological perspectives put in by men, not by the Word of God. As a matter of fact, what is a soul? Do you know that the words immortal soul, immortal soul, is not in the Scripture? You cannot find it anywhere in the Word of God from cover to cover. The words immortal soul. As a matter of fact, the words immortal appear only six times, and they're all in the New Testament. I'm going to go through each of them. The word for eternal life only appears in the New Testament. Immortality only appears in the New Testament. Christ came and brought immortality to light, the light of understanding that simply was not there before. Yes. And Look at what it says here in regards to what a soul is. Let's back up to verse 7. And the Lord God formed man, that is, he yatsar, he built a man with artistic expression. He designed him artistically, like an artist would. The word yatsar, as I've shared with you before, is a word that implies artistic creation, artistic expression. When Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel, a kind of yatsar was happening, artistic expression. 
And God made man with artistic expression. In fact, he also created the spirit of man that he puts in us to animate us intellectually. He also created that with artistic expression. A little bit of this, a little bit of that to make man what I want him to be. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed he nafak, nafak, that is He inflated the man's lungs. He blew air. It means to blow. It means to puff. It means to inflate. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the nashoma, the wind, the air, the spirit, as it were, equal to what we think of in the New Testament as the word pneuma. And it was breathed into the man. Sandy worked in the emergency room for many years. And in fact, She had occasion as a nurse working in the emergency room on occasion to actually perform respiration on someone, to breathe into someone the breath of life. That's remarkable. That must be a, it must have been an incredible moment for someone to do that and to see someone start to breathe again. I remember years ago we had a little dog and and she, she even respired that dog and I better quit talking about that. I'll get too mushy here. But that's what's being described here. And I've shared my, my belief about this. I believe that it happened exactly the way it's portrayed here. That God, with artistic expression, made a man. And it made it, he made it to look like him. If I would be a man. If I would go into my own creation, I would need upright bipedal motion. I would need opposing fingers and thumbs. I would need stereoscopic eyes and ears. I would need a, I would need a physical brain to give me intellect. You know. So God knew very well what he needed and what he was doing. And so when he was, when he was Yatsar, when he was forming the man, all of that came into play, of course. And so he made a man in his image. In the image of God created he them, male and female, yes. And so he made a man. And at some point he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Well, God is almighty, omnipotent God. God without limitation. He could have sat on his throne and made it happen just by saying the word, just by thinking the thought, because he is almighty God. But what is portrayed here is a very personal story. And we have numerous examples in God's word of how God actually took on a human physiognomy to interact with man in a very personal way. For crying out loud, he came here and became a human being in a very personal way to hang on the cross. And we know that he walked and talked in human form with Abraham. We know that he appeared in human form, numerous times. He appeared and talked with Moses. Yes. Why would he do anything less than that here in this most important moment of life as it begins for the human race? I believe that he did exactly what is portrayed here. I believe that God made a man to look like him. And, but now it's, it's inanimate. It's not alive. But it's equipped with, with all the organs. It's, it's perfect in every kind of way. It's ready to be animated. And so he lifted it up. I can't do that without pausing to get control of myself because it always makes me emotional. And he breathed the breath of life into him. And man became a living soul. That means that Adam opened his eyes and when he did... He was this close to the face of God and they looked into each other's eyes and that was our start as a species. And God began to reveal himself. Yes. It was as personal as God could make it. Yes. And so he breathed the breath of life into the man and the man became a living soul. The word living soul is the translation of the word nefesh. Nefesh. A mortal soul physical, air-breathing creation. That's the precise understanding of the word. An air-breathing, living thing. 
It's the same word in the creation epic that we see applied to all of the animal life forms, to whales and other animal life forms. They also became nephesh. That's the same word that's used. And so man became a living soul. The whole man, the entity, the, the clay image that is now animated and breathing is the soul. That's what a soul is. I'm a soul, you're a soul. We are souls in total. It's not that it's some separate entity. It's part of the whole package. That's what the Bible portrays. And did you know that the Bible talks about dead souls, dead people, dead souls? As a matter of fact, the word death, dead souls appears in Scripture more times than the word living soul. Isn't that amazing? You mean a soul can die? Well, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 and Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, God thought it so important, he said it back to back twice here, the soul that sinneth shall die. Yes. Not go on living in some altered state of consciousness somewhere else. The soul that sinneth shall die. And what do we know, students of the New Testament as well? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. Its gift must be received. A gift must be given and received. We're not born with it. If we're born with it, most of the New Testament becomes irrelevant and meaningless. We're not born with it. We can acquire it through Jesus Christ. That's the point. That is the gospel message that through Jesus Christ you can acquire immortality. It is, the, it is the gift of eternal life to the saints. Yes. You're not born with it. When you were born, you became a living soul that has a, a beginning, a duration of life, and an absolute end. Yes. Allow me to go on here. Turn with me, if you would, over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Am I going to run out of time again? Last week I ran out of time. I got 20 minutes? Oh, I'm in good shape then. All right. 1 Thessalonians. I don't know. I still got a lot of scripture to cover. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let us break into the text of what Paul had to say here to the Corinthian church in chapter 4. In verse 13, Brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. All through God's word, in both testaments, sleep is the metaphor for death. And we can absolutely, conclusively, without any ambiguity whatsoever, prove that from the very mouth and words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the 11th chapter of the book of John, students of the Bible, he deliberately waited until Lazarus was dead for four days. So everybody knew he was dead. As a matter of fact, decay had begun. They referenced the fact that there was an odor. Yes. But he was deliberate. And he said so. So that you may see the power of God. Yes. And so he went. And his disciples said, well, Lord, if, if Lazarus is just asleep. Because the Lord had said, well, he's asleep. Let's go wake up Lazarus. And the disciples said, well, Lord, if he's asleep, just leave him alone. He's fine. And finally, he said, Lazarus is dead. Yes. That, that analogy, that metaphor for life and death is common it, throughout Scripture from cover to cover. In fact, there aren't any exceptions in regards to life and death in the Bible. Yeah. You know, I know it's not... People don't like to think that, that their loved ones are not in heaven. It's an easy thing to believe in because the attractiveness of it, you know. 
I want, you mean to tell me my, my granny's not in heaven? Don't you tell me that. Don't you tell me that my sainted grandmother and grandfather are not in heaven. Yes. See, people don't want to hear. It's an inconvenient truth here about the soul. It's an inconvenient truth. Yes. Tell me smooth things. Tell me things that won't challenge my paradigms. Yes. And if you do, I'm going to go right directly to my priest or preacher and let him get that out of my head for me because I'm troubled. It's like the Sabbath. People realize that the Sabbath is talked about at great length in the Bible and that the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. And they start thinking, wait a minute, what's this stuff about the Sabbath? Hmm. So they find a deacon or a minister or a priest Please explain this to me so I can be comfortable again with our doctrines. Help me get this, to, let me put this to rest so I don't have to struggle with this anymore. So that I can be happy keeping Sunday, which the Lord never kept. But that's what people do. Here in 1 Thessalonians, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. Don't be sorry about that, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Bring with him from where? Oh, they'll turn to this again. This is go-to scripture number two here. See there, he's going to bring them from heaven. The Lord's going to descend from heaven and bring them with him. Completely ignoring what it says later on here in this same verse and all the other scriptures in regards to a resurrection. Oh, you mean the Bible teaches a resurrection? Yes, from cover to cover, a resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain alive, as it were, under the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are dead those which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And we know that that trump is a reference to the seventh trump, the last trump. And we could turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation and other places and verify that a trumpet will indeed be blown. The voice of the archangel with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And when you report it correctly, it is absolutely comforting. Yes, to meet the Lord in the air as he then does what? What is he going to do upon his return? Is he going to kind of like bounce off the atmosphere with all of the disembodied souls and and take them to heaven so they can become angels? Well, now, really, let's face it. Isn't that what is portrayed in traditional Christian circles? I I may be oversimplifying it a little bit, but, but somebody say amen. Am I saying it right? Yes, yes. And yet... Angels are created beings who were created to serve man. And, and, the, and the world tomorrow, the kingdom of God, and on out into eternity, has not been put under the subjection of angels. It's put under the subjection of man. If we go to heaven and become angels, then you've got a major contradiction in God's word that you cannot resolve. No, we don't become angels. We become members of the family of God. We become part of that oneness that God desires. We become part of his family. We become members of his kingdom. Yes. Born of spirit via a resurrection. Christ being the firstborn from the dead. The, The term firstborn implies what? Others must be born from the dead. Otherwise, he can't be the firstborn. Yes. So turn with me now, if you would, in your Bibles, over to John chapter 3. 
And this is a verse of Scripture that is also very inconvenient for people who want to cling to the idea of immortal souls going to heaven. In John chapter 3, the book of John, John's gospel was not written the day after the resurrection of the Lord. It was written decades later, decades later. Okay. In fact, John did most of his writing when he was very old. That's not a, an opinion of Wayne Hendricks. Those are the facts that we can, that we can you know, prove from God's word and from secular history as well. We know that John lived to be about 100 years of age and that he wrote the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, on the Isle of Patmos or at Ephesus when he was very, very old. Yes. And he also wrote his gospel account, as did the other gospel accounts, decades after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord. And it's important that I, that I highlight all of that for you because of what John says here. Let me break into the text as he quotes the Lord Jesus Christ. John is the one who had a deeper insight into the person of the Lord and his deity than anyone else. He's the disciple that the Lord loved. They were actually related in some kind of way. And he had, he had insight. He's the one who tells us that God is love. He's the one who tells us that God is light. And God allowed him to live out his life, to be an old man, to write very profound things for us about love in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And to, and to take the revelation of Jesus Christ down and write it in the book of Revelation. And so John was, was special. They all were. But he certainly had a special relationship with John. The scripture says John is the disciple that the Lord loved. And we know he loved them all. But John was a lovable guy. And he really loved John. He loved John's love. He loved John's humanity. He, John, my mother, your mother now, from the cross, he was appealing to what he knew about John, that John was a kind and caring man. Yes. And John says this, quoting the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll break into the text at verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, again, the Lord speaking, and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Then he says this, no man has ascended up to heaven. And then you'll see a parenthetical statement that John included. These are not the words of the Lord. It is a parenthetical statement that John includes for clarity's sake. Without this parenthetical statement, there would be a problem. No man has ascended up to heaven, parentheses, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Do you understand the parenthetical necessary statement here? But the Lord said, no one has ascended up to heaven, except he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. John wrote this after hundreds and possibly thousands of Christians had died. And they were not ascended into heaven. No one had ascended into heaven except Jesus Christ, the one who came down from heaven and has now ascended to heaven. Are you following the logic here, connecting the dots? Hundreds, if not thousands, in fact, it would have been thousands, of Christians had already died by the time these words were written. But they're not in heaven, for no man has ascended to heaven. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? And you cannot refute it. Take it to your preacher and see what kind of a spin he puts on it. It can't be refuted. Yes. The words immortality and eternal life, like I said, they don't appear in the Old Testament. Immortality appears six times in the New Testament. And I want to I go through those briefly. I hope I don't run out of time. What happens if I run out of time? Will that DVD not record more time? Well, they might get upset then. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 1. 
2 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 10. Talking about the, uh, the holy calling that we have received and so forth. It is, verse 10. is now made manifest by the appearing of, of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death. He has overcome death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the gospel message. We can now understand what it's all about and that uh, eternal life is the reward of the saved. He brought that to light, that distinction, that understanding. He brought it to light for us in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2 at verse 7. Talking about the fact in verse 6 that God will render to every man according to his deeds. To, verse 7, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. You see, it's something that we must seek for, to go after, to want, to desire. Immortality and eternal life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Boy, I'm trying to go fast here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 17. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which, verse 16, should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Yes, believing on him acquires that for us. Verse 17. Now, under the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I wanted to include that because it is referencing Jesus Christ, and that's the proof text, of course, that it is indeed. He is the the king. The word invisible is a or atos, and it doesn't literally mean invisible. It means unseeable. You know, it talks about God the Father being invisible in, uh, in the book of Colossians. But that, that, again, must be understood in the proper context. He, he, he exists in an unapproachable light, we're told. The glory of the Father is such that it's, he's unseeable from that respect. And the word needs to be translated with that understanding. That the Father's glory is such... It's, it's like, and I've, I've portrayed it this way, you can't look at the noonday sun, the brightness of the sun. It's too much. And that's what's implied about this word, our atos, the glory, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul had to write 1 Corinthians 15. He had to write this letter to the Corinthians because he had to address something that was already being preached incorrectly. The New Testament, other than the the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the rest of the New Testament is a rebuttal to false doctrine. It is a rebuttal to things that were being incorrectly preached. It was necessary for Paul and the others to straighten everybody out. That's why we have the bulk of the New Testament. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul references the fact that some were saying that there was no resurrection. Well, guess what? They, in effect, are saying that even now by virtue of the fact that they ignore it. By ignoring it, they are, in effect, disclaiming it. How many of you have been to funerals wherein the priest or the preacher talks about the, the deceased being in heaven and beholding the face of the Lord and looking down upon us as we are here today talking about them. You know, I would expect virtually everyone in here, if you've ever been to a funeral, to raise your hand. Yes. And then probably, probably at the gravesite or, or at some point in the ceremony, and I recently, Sandy and I were recently at a, at a Catholic funeral, and, and in the very same breath, I mean without taking another breath, the priest referenced the fact that the, the deceased was in heaven 
and then, and then referenced the resurrection. It can't really be both ways, can it? Yeah. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ be not raised, break into the text at verse 17, your faith is vain and you are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep, those who are already dead in Christ, are perished if there is no resurrection. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen. Christ is indeed risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept, of them that were dead. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Yes. The first man, Adam, screwed it up. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, made it okay. Yes. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, if you've already got it, then that verse of Scripture don't make sense. You will be made alive. When? At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is the gift of eternal life. Yes, through Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man, listen to this, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's a done deal, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. When does it happen? At his coming, when he returns. That's when it happens. Yes. Now, if you would, brethren, I've got some more scripture, but I'll, I'll forego that to go to the finish. Yes. And I'll just reference this. This is the oldest question that philosophers and priests and pundits and poets have always pondered. And it is the source of, you know, religions coming into existence. Is man immortal? What happens when you die? Yes. Satan told that lie and the world has believed it. Every religion that has ever existed or currently exists, with the exception of the religion in this book, teaches the immortality of the soul. Oh, he's been believed. Revelation 12, 9 tells us that the world has been deceived and that the world and other places, we're told, lies in deception. The God of this world has been very successful, crying out loud, He deceived a third of the angels while they were with God. And he has deceived the entire human race. And that, I'll just remind you this, that reference there in Revelation 12, 9 is in a Christian document written to the Christian church. It ought to be clear. The point should be very clear what what the deception is all about. The book of Revelation talks about the real church and a false church true Christianity, and something else. It's very clear. The world has been deceived in regards to Christianity. That's the point. Yes. And here in 1 John. 1 John. In chapter 2 of 1 John. Let me break into the text at verse 24. Let that therefore abide in you, that is the word of God, which you have heard from the beginning. And what we learned about the beginning and about you will surely die. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. Yes. The reward of the saved. Verse 26. These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you, that tell you something else, that tell you you're already immortal. Now let's just drop down to verse 1 of chapter 3. I just love these verses of Scripture. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, the technion of God, the children of God. It's a gender-inclusive word. Behold, can you hear the, the amazement in, in, in John as he writes this? Wow, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us 
that we should be called the sons of God. Yes. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. And it still doesn't. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. Yes. Embryonic. Gestating in the womb of the church. Waiting for the resurrection to eternal life. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. Yes. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall uptenamahi him. Not just aido, which is the Greek word for seeing, physically seeing. Right now, aido is happening as I look at you. Yes. But uptenamahi is when I comprehend you. I understand you. I see you in every possible way, intellectually, emotionally, intuitively, instinctively, in every kind of way. Optonomy. It doesn't yet appear what we will be like. We have an idea, but it hasn't appeared yet. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will have the optonomy experience. In the resurrection, when we meet Christ in the air, we will recognize him. We will see him as he is. We will see the glory. We will understand it all. It will be a transformative experience, and we will never be the same from that moment forward. From that moment forward, we will be immortal, and we will no longer be corruptible, and we will be holy, and we will be like him. For eternity, enjoying the gift of eternal life. You know, I think I'll just close with Job's words. Job chapter 14, verse 14. Job being the oldest Hebrew scriptures. He said, if a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time, I will wait until my change comes. God be with you, brethren.